Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What is the first brand in your life you remember having an impact on you? Yeah, it was a pair of skis for sure. I have a brother who's 11 years older than I am, and he was a great skier, and I, I pretty much wanted to be him. And uh, one Christmas, I got a pair of Rossignol skis, and they have this fantastic French rooster on the tips. And it was probably the first time that I could stay with him going down uh, down a hill in Squaw Valley was uh, with those skis. And we didn't grow up in a really brandy household, but uh, there was an exception when ski gear was <laughs> Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Matthew Anderson, the CMO of Roku, the top streaming platform in the US. What an interesting time to be talking with Matthew as streaming is absolutely surging. Roku is not a new company. It was founded in 2002 by Anthony Wood, and this is his sixth company he found, hence the name. Roku is Japanese for six. Matthew has been CMO since 2013 and has seen the rapid growth of Roku Matthew has worked for Ogilvy, Sky, News Corp, and now Roku, and he has a personal passion for making a difference in climate change. And this passion to make a difference runs through his family. Matthew's wife, Genevieve, is founding a new girls' high school in San Francisco focused on STEM education with the goal of developing future female leaders in our tech economy. If you want to learn more, go to sfgirls.org. This is my conversation with Matthew Anderson. Welcome to the CMO Podcast, Matthew. This is perhaps the most timely episode I've ever recorded on the CMO Podcast because we are recording in the midst of the coronavirus, which has so much sadness on so many levels. But it is a good time to be in the streaming business. And I want you to, you know, so many people are counting on you for hope, for entertainment, for distraction, for education, for, I mean, I'm doing more cooking now, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm searching for what, to, what, what inspiration is in cooking. So just tell me what life is like these days for you, pre-virus, professionally and personally. Yeah, well, um, welcome to my home. I think one of the, uh, one of the actually the wonderful small things about working from home recently is that you get to know your colleagues on a slightly different level. You get to see what's in their background and where they're working from and hear their kids as they pop behind the screen or a dog bark. And we, uh, I think it's really brought a lot of the character and humanity and kind of togetherness as we've gone through something that's very, very difficult. Uh, you're right that streaming has, um, has increased quite a bit. Um, and what we've seen is a couple of trends. One is that there was a huge spike in news, undeniably. And so we try to make that very easy to get to. But everything that is about being at home 
Many people are at home with a family, and so we've seen a big increase in kids and educational programming. We've seen uh, fitness. Uh, you know, a lot of people are used to being able to exercise outside or be on a team or go to a gym. So fitness has really gone up. We've seen a really positive set of trends. Things like faith and spirituality have uh, increased a lot. And and just as there's a, a big hunger to understand what's going on, there's also a kind of reaction, which is, uh, how do I get some of my time back? And so we've seen that uh, things like family movies have really, really spiked on the, on, on the Roku platform. I was just looking at it, and uh, if you take our search, you know, what are people searching for? Things like um, Annie, Jumanji, Frozen 2. <laughs> you have this wow. picture of families around the country getting together and uh, having some of that quality time as a, as a respite, I guess, to, uh, to what they're going through. So yourself personally, I don't know how many people are under your house these days. I have three here now. My son and daughter-in-law are home. Uh, and my wife is in California with our daughter, who's an ICU nurse. So what is, what's happened to you personally? What's different about life? What are you watching more of, listening more of, reading more of, doing less of, doing more of? Yeah, well, the, the first thing that did happen was I was working a lot more. <laughs> and I think in the early days of something that was so full on, uh, we're a company of 1,700 people. And I found that the boundaries between work and, uh, and, and family began to get really blurred. So much so that my wife at one point just said, hey, look, you got to get some time off of that laptop, which was great advice. Uh, we're very fortunate. We have three children. Uh, two of them are at home. Uh, one's college age and one's after college. And so I've actually felt that uh, it's been a silver lining to have that, that time together as a family. And we're very ritualistic around dinner. And so that precious time of talking through the day's events, noodling and trying to understand what's going on, uh, posing questions about what we would do if we were in a position of authority, and most of all, empathizing. Uh, you know, we, we're relatively fortunate to be a family, to be safe at this point. Uh, but what most people are going through is really difficult. Uh, and then we have one more uh, child who's working for the Treasury Department in the UK. And so she's on the other side of the ocean and um, and contending with that and, and how a different country is responding to a crisis has made it a very international experience as well. So she's probably working very hard now, right? Well, believe it or not, she started working on uh, things related to Brexit. And if that weren't complicated enough, <laughs> you had to throw in coronavirus. But um I think we're all just very, very thankful that, uh, you know, loved ones are safe and trying to be helpful to people who are going through uh, real difficulty. What about, uh, you know, how you're working? You mentioned that your team, you know, you're getting to know each other in a different setting and personalities are come through and the home is coming through. Uh, anything else you're learning as a leader about yourself and your team as you go through this? We've heard from other CMOs that the level of creativity coming out has been very high. Yeah. And that's something they want to carry forward after this crisis subsides. Well, the first thing is it's been incredibly inspiring. I, I, I can't say enough about the resourcefulness and the uh, morale and upbeatness and, and everything that we've seen across the company. Probably the biggest insight that I've had is that while we're having a simultaneous experience, it truly isn't the same for everybody. And one of the most important things as a leader is to 
think about how your team is experiencing something differently as well as the same. Uh, you have, I, I felt a kind of pang of guilt over one weekend. Uh, one of my mantras in recruiting to our recruiting team is just go find the best people. And sometimes that means moving them across the country. And some of our young all-stars are have moved to the Bay Area recently, but they're living at home. And that's a very different circumstance than uh, you know, living uh, as a family. We also have a lot of parents who are really are contending with younger kids who uh, have a harder time understanding uh, what is going on. And the stress around being incredibly dedicated professionally, but also uh, carrying on with homeschooling and uh, those things is, is tough. And I think one of the first things that we did was, you know, everyone shared, of course, you know, tips for working at home but we went and created a great list of the things not to worry about. You know, don't worry if your dog barks. <laughs> don't worry if your kid's hungry. You know, and, and I think just trying to take down some of that stress and then allowing us the flexibility to, uh, to really, in the time for work uh, that we have, to, to make a big difference. You talked about consumers or people a moment ago and what seems to be surging in terms of, um, you know, viewing habits, streaming, news, faith and spirituality. Is there anything in there that's particularly surprising to you? I think one of the things that was most interesting, um, and it gets to a CMO conundrum, if you will, is that the bread and butter for a lot of uh, TV services and a lot of advertisers is live linear sports. And we really wanted to understand what happened to the people who were dramatic NBA fans or NHL fans what would happen to them in this completely rare period where uh, live sports has essentially gone off air? And what surprised me most was the incredible force with which those former linear sports hours or live linear sports hours moved to streaming. And so we saw uh, you know, things like NHL fans more than doubling their news consumption or that their uh, movie consumption is up by half or even that something like comedy had gone up by 20% or so. So I think there's a real uh, a shift where uh, when those sports went, went dark, if you will, uh, the, the move to streaming was so strong uh, overall. Um, I know that you know, you, you've heard a little bit about my, my history as a marketer. And one thing is that I, I did spend seven and a half years in Asia. And in those years when I was in Hong Kong, uh, we went through a number of, of ups and downs. There was the Thai bot crisis, there was the dot-com bubble burst, but I was in Hong Kong during SARS and uh, that period made a big impression on me. And what I think the thing that I realized early on or came out of SARS with is that you can have a health crisis and an economic crisis that are very closely linked. And the economic crisis recalls for huge adaptation for every family. And uh, so one of the things, it's not a surprise, but it's been very big, is how much people are seeking value. Uh, I read a study that showed, you know, half of people say they're looking at prices more closely than they did just a few weeks ago. And so we've seen an, on Roku that free TV, um, one of the initiatives we've done is to make a lot more TV just free and easily accessible. And it's, it's made a big difference. Wow. Let's now um, talk a bit more about your role as CMO at Roku. You've been in that job seven years, and we're going to talk about your earlier career a bit later in the podcast. 
And I'm a Roku customer, but my guess is it's not a brand that is a household name like Tide or Pampers or Gillette. So I want you to tell our listeners a bit about what brand Roku is, sort of what your purpose is. Uh, you've been in business since I think 2002. And a little bit more about your business model before we dive a bit more deeper into your work and your life. Sure, I'd love to. Um, Roku's mission is to give a modern software experience to every TV in the world. That's that's what we hope to do someday. It's a big kind of mission, and that's sort of a businessy thought. But our real uh, purpose is to make TV better for everyone. The TV industry is going through one of the most unprecedented changes of any industry at all. And that was even before COVID. If you take anything from the pace of cord cutting, which was at an all-time high at the end of last year, if you take the fact that uh, smart TVs are have capabilities that people couldn't dream of and that each one is connected to the internet, if you think about how it enables advertising to be targeted and measurable, which you could never do on a TV before, it's such a big uh, disruption. So when we were founded, there was really a core idea, and, and that was that each generation of technology has an operating system. We don't question that your laptop has an OS or that your phone has an OS, but it's amazing that it's only been in more recent years that every television set, the biggest screen in your house that has the richest entertainment experience is now being powered with this incredible software and technology. So that's what we do. And uh, through being resourceful and being very focused and through having some advantages, uh, we've been able to become the number one streaming platform in the U.S. by hours, streamed. And that's a pretty incredible accomplishment just given the size of the company and the resources that we've had. And uh, our goal is just to help you find content easily. And we're a value brand that tries to make things less expensive for people. So what does the CMO of Roku do? What is your work? If you had to put it into a pie chart, what would that look like? And how is it different from CMOs at other institutions? Yeah, you know, I my view on the role of the CMO is that it's um, it's a it's a pretty impossibly broad set of things that you can get that. up to. And in fact, in candid conversations with my peers, one of the things they we often talk about is how can you do it all? There are so many components of this role. So what I decided to do is to really have my own personal mission at Roku and then to go about it in a way that was different than I had in other marketing and, and comms jobs. And it was really fundamentally to bring the voice of the customer into the entire business, not just the marketing team. Um, we are smaller than our competitors, but I believe we can be better at understanding our consumer. And I believe that we can act on it uh, more effectively because we're very focused. And what I love to do, um, and I'm very proud of in the Roku marketing department, is how we work across the seams of the organization. I have a lot of peers and they, they're sort of in a marketing box and they're amazing, uh, amazing at performance or brand management or lots of things. But I think what we've done very well is to earn the opportunity to work closely with the engineering team, with the product team, and to uh, bring that voice in, the UX team, 
and to really come up with a brand experience that's the totality of not just the output of the marketing department, but really every touch point uh, with the company and with the brand. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. What's your most important capability at Roku Marketing? What is sort of the one thing you look for in recruits that is, uh, in, in a way, your competitive advantage? Sure. I love people who have a a mixture of being kind of intrepid and, and calm at the same time. I think they can be very infectious. And uh, I think that there are moments when you define yourself not just by where you work, but by the pace of change you can bring about in an industry, and also by the honor of competing with great companies. And so for us, uh, you know, some of the companies we compete against are the biggest, most successful names in technology and consumer electronics. And through a lot of resourcefulness, a lot of cleverness, and a lot of uh, grace under pressure, I think we've been able to plot a course and build a brand within streaming that is bigger uh, than many of them. Um, you know, and it wasn't always thus, but I, I have gone to focus groups recently all over the country, and I've been surprised that non-Roku users who've never even touched the product will tell me that your brand color is purple. <laughs> mm, yeah. And that's showing that there's an infection. But I think to the, to the point about, about the capability and the real muscle, it, it is about customer focus. And I know that, that uh, that's easy to say, but maybe an example of how we, we, we bring it about. Uh, when I got to uh, Roku, our process of launching a product was a little bit like a sequential series of handoffs. We'd um, stack rank the features, we'd build out the software, we'd release that to the network, we would take things into retail, we would do marketing and, and communications, and it was sort of a chain of events. And we decided that we'd eventually reshape the notion of a product launch. And it wouldn't be when your job was done, but we'd define it by achieving a ranking of stars and customer reviews that the whole team had signed up for. And what was a magical thing was the product wasn't launched until it was happily reaching the customer at the endpoint, where someone was having an experience where they would statistically buy it more, recommend it more, and power the company that way. So from our CEO down, we have a real pride and focus in winning reviews, whether they're professional or, or user reviews, and they don't lie. <laughs> they are the most unvarnished, clear feedback that you have, and we're very driven. And so a lot of what we do organizationally is work across those seams to be able to orchestrate um, a positive customer experience. I love that thought. What, what, what could others learn from your KPIs? I mean, you talk about the product launch not sort of being successful until you're getting the users to you know, weigh in. So when you think about your KPIs, your team's KPIs, what could others learn from how you measure yourself? Yeah. Um, I think that one, an insight culture is very helpful. Um, currently, one of my fascinations is 
really to try to break new ground in terms of the interplay between consumer insight and data science or marketing analytics. I think uh, my happiest moments are when we're out doing research and the number of marketers in the room is smaller than the number of product people or engineers or program management. Um, when you see that the company is really oriented towards that, I think it's very powerful. Um, we do use NPS and I think it's a powerful measure. And I think being candid about it and being candid about uh, where we have gotten something right uh, and where an experience can be improved. Um, we do stand-up meetings every day after a product is launched and we try to identify what are the fastest things we could improve right afterwards. So just allowing that voice to exist inside the company. And then I, I found, you know, in in performance or in, in our marketing, uh, we can try to write amazing copy and be very creative. But when you've had seen it Editor's Choice Award for seven years in a row, that's pretty good copy. <laughs> you know, people like yeah. that. And trying to play back that feedback uh, because the, it's a good experience is very helpful. Yeah. So how do you make sure you maintain this customer-centric culture? It comes up in almost every podcast. It is way harder to do than to say. How do you keep that going day in and day out over your seven years in this job and beyond? Yeah, I... I do think that we have an engineering culture. Um, it is a culture that is strong on documentation. It's proud of the products. Uh, we're not a young startup. Uh, we're a company where people derive satisfaction from doing something really well. And so uh, having the mechanisms to play that back regularly, spending a lot of time with product, spending a lot of time with uh, other options out in the field and recognizing when they get better and improve. Um, I think being willing to not get too caught up in fads. Uh, I remember going to CES one year and every single TV had uh, what was called gesture recognition. And the idea was you'd kind of wave your arms and your TV would change or something. And uh, it was such a, a big deal. And people said, well, how can you not have gesture recognition? And our our ethos was to try to do things when they'll work, you know, 99% of the time, but but not always jump on the first thing. And, and so having a little bit of that uh, ability to stick with what matters and to change things evolutionary and not just because there's a new broom, uh, I think is also very powerful in, in sticking with customers. How are you a different leader today, Matthew, than you were when you came into this role seven years ago? How have you evolved? Yeah, I guess one of my biggest goals, uh, having worked around the world and, and coming doing coming full circle and coming back to the Bay Area, was I, I did want to work for an engineering-led company. I wanted to um, be able to imagine marketing that was kind of built with engineering. It wasn't just external services and agencies, but it was built fundamentally into the fabric of the, of the product. I wanted to go on a journey of being part of a private company that could become a public one. I wanted to be aligned with a overall trend, a kind of an area in media that had wind in its sails that was gonna be very beneficial to consumers. And I think really that was the culmination of many years of experience and wanting to pull those things together. Um, uh, and I've really enjoyed it. Probably in terms of the biggest changes for me is that um, when the nexus of power in your organization is incredibly 
left brain. Um, I think I've made cases uh, ensuring that we had data, that we had strong tests, that we had real validity in our data science and marketing. I think being able to not just offer opinion, but, but show evidence along the way is very powerful. And then I think when you do have a creative call, a big creative call, you know, we'll test it. But also sometimes you have to be that voice when, when you're uh, part of that external heart of the organization to have the confidence to make that case. And, uh, and I've been fortunate to be, be backed uh, you know, by the leadership to, to bring that forward. Your criteria for you know, taking this role is very clear. What other engineering cultures that are also customer focused do you admire? I think I, I do I do admire Netflix a lot in terms of capability. Um, you know, I, we used to uh, at Sky have a forensic strategy team that would think about the the uh, opportunities and threats in the landscape. And when I started, the, the all the companies we looked at were terrestrial TV networks in the UK. And by the time I was uh, moving on to 21st Century Fox, uh, the companies we were looking at were all based in Silicon Valley. And what we see is that the world of media is replatforming from antennas and and uh, and TV, you know, satellites and things like that to using modern tools of data science and software and engineering. And uh, Netflix was clear to understand that they had great strategic clarity and uh, they executed very well. So I think that's that's an engineering culture that I like a lot. Mm-hmm. You're in a market a category where differentiation is a challenge and it's a challenge for all of us how do you differentiate roku i mean what what could others learn from what you do because you it's not an easy one yeah yeah i that's probably one of the most important questions and it's actually a theme of uh my all hands talk in front of nearly 1800 people uh earlier this year we have a couple levels of differentiation. I think sometimes people see it only through one lens. Um, one very important one is, do you have B2B differentiation? And so we both have a, a world that works with things like uh, TV OEMs in Asia who make Roku TVs. And we also have a world where we're differentiated with consumers who, who buy our end products. So in the OEM world, um, one of the insights that Roku was based on was that if we made a purpose-built operating system for TV, we could have a fundamental cost advantage against mobile phone operating systems that were being ported back to, to, a, to a TV. And so we're actually a more efficient way to make a normal TV a smart TV. And that allows us to be more stealthy at uh, retail, to be a better partner for retailers, and to also lead in price points for our streaming players, which are sticks that you hook into a TV yourself. So we have done a lot of that. The second thing is that we believed that um, one of our principles is that all TV will be streamed and that that is a trend that's playing out. The corollary to that is that all advertising will be streamed. And so we built a lot of marketing and promotional tools natively into the Roku OS that would allow content companies to build big audiences or allow brands to talk to consumers in totally different ways than they could in linear TV. So we press those advantages pretty hard. And then in terms of consumers, we think about three core things, having the best content, making it easy, 
and then giving great value. And the trend that we've focused on the most is, um, is, is really free TV. And how can you take enormous amounts of TV and instead of having a transaction or a subscription, how can you make it free for the end user? And that's really one of the trends that's shaping TV today. You work with, you just spoke about advertising content. Uh, you work with some of the biggest brands in the world and their CMOs. So what counsel do you have them for this world that we're in and moving forward in where everything will be streamed, that value is important, that content is king, one of the quotes we throw around a lot. What do you, how do you work with them? What, what counsel do you give CMOs? Well, I love, I love having a real conversation, a deep one about how both of our worlds are changing and to try to get underneath those kind of cliches or the big platitudes, which, which tend to not force you to dig a lot deeper. Um, I mean, if you think about it today in the United States, nearly 30% of all TV is streamed. Um, if you dig deeper and you go into a 18 to 34 year old who many brands are dying for, it's one in two minutes. 50% of all minutes are streamed. And yet today, only about 3% of TV ad dollars are being invested in the place where between one and four and one and two minutes are being spent. This is a classic mismatch of customers and the, and the brand not quite catching up. The other thing is that, you know, we've all throughout our careers moved money from one channel to another channel. And today what we've done in our kind of ad stack and capabilities is to give the same uh, targeting uh, capabilities for a 15 or 30 second video ad that you can have uh, in digital and to then measure that ad and attribute outcomes based on it. And so we really see that this is probably among the most uh, exciting opportunities for a marketer. It's one of the reasons why I took the job at Roku was I both saw this opportunity to promote Roku, but I saw a CMO toolkit that was emerging that was the most exciting set of capabilities uh, that I had, hadn't even dreamt of at you know, earlier points in my career. Are there brands out there that you're working with who are doing things that others could learn from? I mean, if you could name one or two, I know there's many, but if you could name one or two that you think are very forward looking, doing things that are helpful for their customers that are changing in the right ways. Yeah, I think I'd take that in a couple ways. I mean, one of the first big problems that, that I think CMOs faced is my, my, my creative just doesn't fit the current context. Uh, I have creative that's about people going out and high-fiving or <laughs> having a beer or something like that. And so I think that there has been a really great movement of understanding if you want to be in the market right now, how do you, what's that playbook look like? And that playbook, I think, is about making sure that, um, so some are adapting social creative, uh, some are sponsoring programming. So we, uh, we came up with things like uh, categories within the Roku channel, our free offering. And so we had brands like, um, uh, you know, Intuit would sponsor a category. Um, we also started to develop um, interactive overlays. So you might have a great ad, um, but it, it might not conclude well, because say you were a restaurant, you needed to, uh, you couldn't go to the restaurant anymore. We could do an overlay that says now available for pickup. 
or text here for home delivery or something like that. So I think swift adaptation uh, has been important. And then we're seeing a number of direct-to-consumer brands that are based on being at home and they're leaning in uh, because those services, they're, they're more relevant today than, than they were previously. Let's uh, change the pace of this a bit and look backward at, at your career. And early in your career, you went to Ogilvy. It's a company I know well, and I think you were there about 13 years. And that began a very global career. Um, and you've lived in Brussels, Hong Kong, London, San Francisco, Los Gatos, Dubai. Uh, you worked at Sky, then News Corp, now Roku. You, you directly reported to James Murdoch while at News, News Corp. Wow, what an amazing career path. So I want you to reflect on that for a moment and talk about one or two defining moments in that career that have shaped you as the wonderful leader you are today. I had this internship in Philadelphia and it was with the first uh, company in the nation that wanted to build low-income housing for profit. And it had a real sense of purpose around uh, being able to change the built landscape in Philadelphia for people who needed housing, still a huge issue today. And I, I took my uh, English skills and helped to imagine the booklets and projects and what these things could look like uh, and how to raise money for them with some of the real estate and finance courses I took at Wharton. And, uh, and I, I, I love this interplay between business and between a narrative and communications. And I did go through a cycle starting at Ogilvy in a crazy world, which was hostile takeover defense. It was about how do you uh, help a company survive a uh, something that arguably may not create value for many of the stakeholders in the business. And I think this sort of theme played through, the sort of merging, and I know you've been an incredible exponent of purpose, but how do companies find their voice, find their purpose at different times? Um, Asia was a terrific period because it was uh, right across the region. Ogilvy had been um, very progressive in thinking about how the whole marketing mix would fit together, uh, how to extend an idea very well. And we realized that in that region, um, the, the skill set of public relations and public affairs and understanding your role in society was becoming as important sometimes as the USP of a, of a face cream or a mobile phone. And so we really had a great seat at the table and helped lead some of the discussions around corporate responsibility and the right to operate in these countries. When I got to London, and I, uh, I, I had fallen pretty head over heels in, in fascination with, with the media business. In fact, even James and I, when he was the uh, CEO of Star TV, we had uh, really done great work together in, in India and with that company. And um, Sky was a company that was very successful, um, very driven, uh, but it, um, it had... Uh, lower regard for its reputation when, when I joined. In fact, there's an old slogan amongst the British football clubs, one called the Millwall. And they used to chant, no one loves us and we don't care. And, my, and, and I only met my predecessor at Sky once. And he told me, look, mate, we're the Millwall of the TV industry. Don't try to change it. Well, I, I had different ideas. And I said to James, look, you know, with your support, I'd like to set the goal of making Sky the most admired company in Britain within three years. Uh, 
And it was a pretty crazy, audacious goal at that point, but I saw that there were all these great things. And so we put them all together uh, under a program called, uh, called The Bigger Picture, and we really restated what we could be. It involved becoming the world's first carbon neutral media company in uh, 2005, which was a very uh, progressive and early move around carbon and, and uh, climate. And, uh, and it involved really repositioning the brand around this core idea called Believe in Better. And how could the company constantly serve its customers better and, and do something, do well for society at the same time? I was back in, in London before, right before COVID, and I went to the Sky Campus and saw how this company has grown and furthered and built on that idea. And they're doing world-leading things around uh, the environment and original programming and passing on plastic and lots of other things. So that was very formative for me. Um, before you leave that one, Matthew, could you speak to that a bit more? Uh, changing a culture is so difficult. You're coming in from the outside. So any lessons, principles for others who are in a similar predicament, whether they're, they come from inside the company and they need to change something, they're coming in from the outside. How are you able to achieve that in that short period of time? Well, I did, I did work for a CEO who had an incredible compass. And uh, I was, um, I was uh, nervous and uh, a little out of my depth, and it was my first in-house role at a major publicly traded company in a company in a country where I hadn't lived before. <laughs> so I was uh, it was a tall order, but I did feel that I had a boss who had my back, and he cared deeply about the brand, and he was focused on, in his own words, building a durable company, a company that could last and thrive. And so we made the case we. We uh, took people out to research. We listened to customers. Um, when I got there, there were seven executives who had their own PR firms. And I said, look, we have to have one voice here. <laughs> you know, we're gonna, wow. we're gonna pull this back together. And we were very focused on research. And um, a big moment came when we were leading in the TV industry, but we saw strategically that we could bring together broadband and TV and telephony. And we wanted to shift from being the largest company in an eight billion pound marketplace to a to a uh, to a challenger brand in a twenty five billion, but we were going up against BT and and uh, Virgin and some of these very respected trusted companies, and so I really made the case to my colleagues that you had to be trusted. It wasn't just enough to uh, to have a good product and have great content and to have exclusive content. You also had to really pull things together in a way that you'd be trusted and have that license to operate. And I, I think we did that. Trust is a tough thing to build. It's about behavior and as you say, one voice and meeting commitments and following up and being humble and admitting mistakes. So any key principles in leading that shift. I mean, trust is where all brands aspire to be. But as you know, one thing can disrupt that and it takes years to build it back. Yeah. I, the, the two things that come to mind is, is you, every senior leader has to lead from the front. There's, there's, no, there's no exception at any level within an organization. And that's whether it's customer focus or trust or ethics, it needs to, it needs to be lived and walked every day. I think the second thing is having a really candid senior management team. Um, we've been very lucky at Roku that uh, many of the kind of executive team have, we've been together for 
much of the last you know seven or eight years, and we've had some great people join and a couple go, but that there's a nucleus there. And so we spend three hours a week as a team discussing the biggest challenges, the hardest problems, the, <laughs> the thorniest issues, and I think being able to look at different sides of an issue and just be plain about it. And um, again, in a British expression, you know, play the ball and not the man. You know, we don't have time for politics. We're not a huge company, but we need to be able to isolate the issues and make good decisions about them. What do you, I, I hate when I get this question, but I'm going to send it to you anyway. What do you think your special gift is as a leader and what are you still working on? I'm, I'm, um, I'm pretty optimistic when things get really, really rough. It's a good time for you then, <laughs> yes, right? Exactly. Exactly. I think, um, one of the things I love doing is to help really talented people understand the the context and the importance of their work. Um, by nature, marketing is getting more driven and more specialist and much, much more impressive in many ways than you know twenty or thirty years ago when we were when we were growing up. But when you can help regularly give people that sense of how this fits in and what they're building and how their contribution works within a whole, it's just so rewarding to see people light up in that in that way. So, um, you know, I have uh, chosen two organizational themes for this year: one's uh, clarity and one's scaling. And helping to understand in a growth environment, you know, when your top line is growing very, very quickly, when your user base is growing very quickly, your hours are growing quickly, how to put that kind of thing in play and how it ladders up to, to big, big worthwhile goals is, is something I enjoy a lot. What's your biggest uh, challenge to this clarity and scaling over the next year or two? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, things are... Well, pre-COVID, I would just say that things are moving very, very rapidly. Um, and we are a company that is uh, has, has great talent and great resources. Um, but we do have to make incredibly good choices about where we put every dollar and where we put every hour and not to get spread too thinly. So I think that that process of scaling, I, I love resourceful people. I'm so proud of how um, people on the team come and say, look, I figured out how to do this a better way. I figured out how to do something earned that maybe we had to pay for before. I've created a great partnership. So, uh, you know, you can be really resourceful and, and being able to do that, I think helps with, with this clarity and scale. Being open, um, being willing to uh, constantly uh, hire great people um, being willing to see your team almost like a sports team where you're trying to get the best athletes on the bench at any given time and being very candid about that. Um, those are some of the things that are top of mind for me. So what are you still working on as a leader? Uh, I guess for me, I, I tend to get spread pretty thinly. I think that I, I have some, I try to make lists of things that I absolutely need to do things that someone else can do better, uh, things that I hate doing and just want to get off of my my plate. Um, I love in leadership what um, is sometimes called tough empathy, which is really to empathize with the challenge people face, 
but to be tough about the goals. Um, you know, uh, David Ogilvy used to say, there's not, nothing so demoralizing as a boss without high standards. And so I, I think realizing that with so many fronts that we're on, I think I'm working on trying to constantly evaluate, you know, which is the hour that I can spend that's going to give the biggest benefit to the company. About 15 years ago, the World Economic Forum named you a, a significant young global leader for your work on climate change. So what was the catalyst for that? Why was that a passion for yours? Is it still? And how are you keeping that alive? Yeah, uh, I'm glad you raised that. It is, it is a true passion. And uh, I, did, I did grow up in the Bay Area, and there is a, a beautiful commitment to uh, open space and smart policy and, uh, and and things here. And I was really lucky my because my dad was the civil engineer for the Squaw Valley Olympics. We spent a lot of time up in the mountains oh, wow. and just beautiful, beautiful places. So I empathize with that. Um, I also think that uh, climate is, you know, a fundamental uh, defining thing about our characters right now and what world are we living in and what world will we leave behind? Um, one of the great benefits of being named a young global leader uh, was that we were exposed to some current global leaders who talked about some of the issues that were really consequential. And, uh, you know, I was one of the people who saw Vice President Gore's slideshow when it was still a slideshow. And the biggest critique at the end of seeing it was that it was a great analysis of the problem, but hadn't yet spelled out some of the solutions. One of the first things that I gravitated towards was that there's something closing in on, you know, a trillion dollars of marketing spend globally. And so um, along with some friends, I wrote the first book that was destined for CMOs around the world that had case studies of how brands could engage and see this as positive uh, to remove the sense of climate being uh, obligation or compliance or suffering or giving up and instead to reframe it in terms of benefits and uh, forward motion. And, and it really is great. And Sky walked that walk. And so it was a perfect segue between my time at Sky and, uh, and, and strategy and trying to get a multiplier effect around climate in particular. Uh, today, in any, um, any extra hour I have, I support a number of organizations that are doing terrific work in climate. I try to evangelize uh, products and services that are very conscientious about their power use or power source. And, um, and I think that media has an incredible role to play in, in uh, educating people about these opportunities. What's the book you wrote? What is the name of it? Uh, it was called The Book of Love. And, uh, and it was called, and it was uh, particularly, I'll send you a copy. It was, Please, it, was it was a ton of fun. And, and what we did was we got some of the most inspiring individuals um, from media and entertainment and uh, who uh, brands would love to work with. And we got them all to contribute uh, their uh, buy-in and these gorgeous, huge photographs that represented their, their view towards this as an opportunity. And then we profiled 17 companies that were making a big difference. And this was in you know 2005, 2007. It was definitely a bit uh, early in the curve, but it was very inspiring. And it certainly, um, you know, certainly uh, opened up a dialogue in, in a corner that was, uh, was very valuable. 
Hey, this has been a wonderful chat. I want to end it with a bit of a lightning round. So what's a brand today you would have trouble living without? Yeah, you know, in normal times, I'd probably say something different. But um, right now, I there are a couple brands in my life. I'm lucky to sometimes get outside of San Francisco. And there's a little bakery called Parkside Bakery. There's a little market called Palace Market. There's a fantastic place called Hog Island Oysters that pulls yummy oysters out of the bay. And, you know, the the higher ladder of these brands is that they're the fabric of a community, they're healthy, they're at ease with the environment, and they let you go out and be free with your with your friends, your people. <laughs> and uh, that's so at question now. So I, I think while I could mention a mega brand, to me, we all have these local treasures and we need to remember that they're brands in our lives and, and we need to support the the parts of the economy, like the service industries, that that really are at much greater risk um, of not reopening if 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 we're not there for them. Yeah, we need generosity of spirit now in our local communities more than ever, and I see it coming out. But we need more. Yeah, I'm with you. What's the best coaching or advice James Murdoch ever gave you? <laughs> well, um, you know, he took this very bold decision. Uh, when he became CEO of um, of uh, of Sky, he the the company was on a declining rate of growth, and he said, "Look, we're not a utility; we're going to be a growth company." And so he went and laid out his plan. And on the day he did, the company lost several billion dollars of <laughs> or pounds of value. And so I had a had a terrible day once, and just everything went wrong. And he came into um, to my office and he said, look, you haven't knocked a couple billion dollars off the price. It's all going to be okay. Uh, you'll get over this. There are humps along the way, you know, stay the course. And uh, I, I, uh, he, he did it with humor. Uh, I needed to pick me up and, um, and he helped me see the big picture. And, and we had a lot of fun along the way. So humor, humility, perspective, right? Context. I'd say perspective. Look, particularly when you're younger and earlier in your career, there are so many people. You're in a hurry, and you're you're working hard, and you want to move up fast. And and uh, you should you should be ambitious, but you should go where the growth is. You know, some of the best advice I ever got was um, work on work on a hard account. Don't just work on the easy one. Um, you know, I I've seen some of my colleagues at Roku and marketing who have taken on a, an adjacent role when they could have just hung out and maybe moved up a little bit. And they're building this platform where they will be future CMOs. And so, you know, one of my biggest pieces of advice is be careful about specializing too early. Uh, take a range of experiences. I never would have imagined uh, when I was at an early spot in my career that I could be a um, CMO of an industry changing challenger. Uh, but I draw on, you know, what happened along the way. So that's what I'd encourage, go where the growth is. What series are you and your wife watching now or are they different? Uh, well, interestingly, we have uh, moved a little bit into a number of movies. Um, we watched this hilarious show at my daughter's urging called uh, Nathan For You which is this uh, humorist who goes and tries to take on uh, on uh, new businesses that was pretty funny. Uh, I did uh, finish Ozark recently. Uh, it was pretty good. Um, and, 
and actually, I'm I'm a little nerd in this, but I I I'm very fond of uh, of PBS, and uh, the PBS app on Roku is a gateway to some amazing amazing programming, and I do find that sometimes stepping back from some of the pure entertainment and hearing the story of real people's lives is is very inspiring. What's on your near term bucket list? Uh, you know, uh, keeping food stocked in the house, I think, um, <laughs> you know, I yeah. think, uh, I think my near term bucket list is, is really, um, trying to be self-aware about what everyone's going through. And I'm very, very proud of how things like this home together has, has come through and the energy that we're seeing, but I know it's tough and, uh, and people are experiencing difficult things. So I, I think trying to be a compassionate and empathetic person and uh, mix the the pushing side and the forward motion side of the role with some of the repose and stepping back and saying, what aren't we hearing? Uh, who aren't we taking care of? What are real people feeling? Uh, that's sort of what's on my mind. I don't know if it's a bucket list, but that's the kind yeah, of thing no, I'm I thinking it. about. I get it. So last question, who else would be interesting for you to listen to on the CMO podcast? You know, um, Melissa Waters, who uh, recently moved from Lyft to the brand called Hims, which is a sort of uh, DTC healthcare product mm-hmm. for, for both men and, and, and women. Um, I met her the other day in a, a discussion around really the capabilities of a CMO and how you build a team that has such diverse needs and how those things are, are changing. And uh, she's a tremendous tremendously clear thinker and uh, very inspiring to, uh, to to listen to. So I think she'd be good. And I, I think there are some amazing CMOs, particularly who are out on the West Coast, um, who may not uh, be quite as discovered in some ways. And I think uh, we'll have to invite you out here when everything <laughs> clears up and, and you can uh, you know do a well, couple interviews at once. I have a native Californian wife. Good. And we have a home in Coronado, and my most frequently traveled airport actually is SF. Good, good. So, I'm out, so, so let's have a coffee or a glass of wine one of these days. Or an oyster and bread, something like that. Yeah, okay, right. That's good, too. That's good, too. Matthew, this has been marvelous, wonderful. Uh, I've enjoyed it. I could go for another hour, and maybe we'll do that offline. But thank you for being so generous in this very, very challenging time for you, your team, and all of us. Yeah, thank you very much, and, and thanks for – this is a real form of support for, for everyone who's listening, so I really appreciate it. That was my conversation with Matthew Anderson. I can't even tell you what I love most about this because everything was so darn good. He talked a lot about what they're trying to do for their consumers today on their streaming platform. He said, we're trying to give them great content and make it easy and provide more value with free TV. So great content, easy and value are pretty good principles for any brand these days. I really enjoyed this one, full of principles, full of learning. He's a wonderful human being. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.